Shepherds. He's the guy at the uh, Alex Shepard, friend of the show. We've had him on before. Yep. Um, I think it's a Patreon episode, but really good interview with him. You should all go listen to it. But he's the guy at the trial today, and today's the last day. Yeah. Um, they're doing recaps. The DOJ Penguin Random House <clears throat> yeah, trial. Yeah, we did. If you don't know what that is, or if you're interested in our take on it, that was our episode last week. Go check it out. Um, but anyway, um, he posts here, <clears throat> and I want to I want to read his post verbatim here. And this is, we're in closing argument day. So, Mm -hmm. like, you know, this is it. The defense, which is Penguin Random House, is now basically arguing that P&Ls are made up and that the actual marketing spending isn't determined for months, sometimes years after a book is acquired. Quote, actual marketing spend is not in the (laughs) P&L. It's a profit and loss statement that they use to decide if they can afford to buy a book. That rules our lives. And we talked about this last week, too. But basically, the mystical document that I get told all the time. See, here's the thing that happens to me when you rep communists is <laughs> you the editor loves the book, right? Yeah. I get a, I really have a good relationship with a lot of editors at a lot of places. Then what happens invariably is that editor has to then go take that book that they love and I love and the author has written beautifully and present it to a bunch of people who let's – just say have a different view of the world than <laughs> me, the author, and the editor. Not a communist. And the way uh, they acquiring the way board. they say it, the way it always comes back to me is, mm, we've got to figure out how to make the P and L work. We're not sure we can do the budget here. We're not sure that we can, you know, pay more than a scant little sum for this, or we're not sure how to make these numbers work. Which I'm being told now, doesn't num- matter. The numbers aren't real. The numbers aren't real, Laura. Um, anyway, I'm excited for everyone who works at uh, all these houses to have to go um, keep dealing with imaginary numbers. Keep making these budgets. Like, I, I don't blame anyone making these things because it's your job. Like, when you're in these houses, you have to sit there and make the budget, right? Like, you input all the stuff. You say, oh, this is how much, you know, we want to do for the advance. Here's what the royalty rates would be. Here's what we think for X, Y, and Z. And you have to hit, like, these get like scrutinized, you know what I mean? And if they don't like the little margin that you end up presenting, it's, you know, your book is a no-go. Like editors spend a lot of time on this stuff. Mm-hmm. And so, and I, like I have a ton of frustrations right now and I promise then we'll get into the real show, but now I'm on a rant. I have a ton of frustrations with de- dealing with editors right now. But I want to make clear that I don't really blame them I think they are working under extremely difficult conditions right now. And one of those conditions is that most of what they're being asked to do apparently isn't real. Um, so that's that's frustrating. And I can only imagine how much more frustrating it would be if this was your job to make a budget, which, again, it is because this is the document that basically rules every decision that gets made in-house. Um, welcome to this episode of Print Run. Uh, my name, and I'm extremely calm, is Eric Hayne. <laughs> uh, with me, as always, Laura Zatz. Say hello, Laura. Hello, Laura. 
I was trying really hard to figure out a way during your little rant to to get in the communism's just a red herring, um, <laughs> but I couldn't, and I'm very sad about it. So, for yeah. those of you who are Clue fans, yes, you're welcome for the not actually good quote. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, we're before we get into like our whole big topic today, and we do have um, a big topic today. It'll be we, fun. We have another big topic for everybody to be mad about. Um, <laughs> I would like to mention that we have it today. It is Friday, August 19th. We have three more office hours coming up mm-hmm. between now and the 31st. You can find the dates of those either by following us on Twitter or going over to our Patreon. Um, if you have specific questions and you're not going to be able to make it, send us an email. We'll make sure we cover it. But also, just like come hang out with us and ask us questions. About I can't say enough. Publishing. I can't say enough about this feature. Like you and I try a lot of different stuff. Like yeah. we've got different Patreon things. We've tried. You know, we've done different bits. We've done different little structures for things that have come and gone. Different little programs. Office hours so far is my favorite. Has definitely been one of our biggest successes. I think because I had one last night or yesterday afternoon. Usually they're right at the end of work hours. Um, and it was, again, and it has been every single time we've done these, it was awesome. Like, it was me, and I think we had at one point eight people in the Zoom call with me. Mm-hmm. And we just mixed it up. Like, we were, it honestly, it, it felt a little bit like a live episode in a lot of ways. Like, people were asking really good publishing questions. We were going back and forth. Like, I was obviously, you know, giving my take on things, but then... Uh, you know, it turned out that someone on the call was a, you know, production editor at a small house. And so she weighed in on a bunch of stuff relevant. It was really fun and really informative. And I just think, like, if you are someone who has a specific question that you are not getting answered, whether it's, you know, on this show, on our Patreon, on any other place, you get your book information and your writing tips or whatever it is. I I really think, like, I'm really bullish on this. Like, come hang out. Come ask. Because... I'll give you what I think, and probably there's someone else in the room (laughs) who knows what they're talking about, too. And it's like, I don't know, it's been, we just sit there for an hour. I don't come in with a plan. Like, it's super easy on our end, you know, because it's not like I have to prepare anything. I love having opinions about things that I don't have to prep. And, like, you know, people are coming in, and, like, it's super chill, too. Like, I've had my baby in there before. Like, other people have had their babies in there before. Like, it's not, it's super relaxed, super fun, and I really think, like, I don't know. It feels to me like the exact sort of feature you and I have been trying to create a lot of different times, yeah. and I'm glad we're doing it. It so. turns out that if people are there to guide you in the specifics of what they want answered, you you end up like doing more for them yeah. than just like talking about things generally into the void. Uh, yeah. So anyway, join us for that. We will also be putting up between now and the end of the month our query show and our first pages show. Mm-hmm. Um, so again, you can always like send us your query or your first pages for us to critique. Um, and those are available to listen to on Patreon. And there are like so many at this point. Um, and y'all's queries are getting real good. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's what we love to see. So that's one thing. One other observation I have on this year. So I reopened in June. Two queries. Two queries. Your slush pile is now open. Yeah. Um, after being closed for a very long time because of paternity leave and trying to catch up and having a baby and not being able to deliver bandwidth to it. But um, I did reopen this summer and night and day. They're so done. good. They've been re- like, no, they're really good. Like, and I'm like, uh, this doesn't, I mean, 
you know, I'm sorry to tell you, this doesn't mean I'm like signing every single person, but like the quality of the letters I'm getting and the quality of the like specificity for why someone is sending me something, Mm -hmm. it's like really, I'm really, it feels way different and it's really refreshing and I'm having a great time going through pitches. And if you and I feel like that, I'm sure a lot of other agents are feeling like that. No, I mean, I think like the state of things is improving, you know, like when we first started, like, it did feel yeah. like. Turns out you're all good at this. Yeah, no, I mean it's just. <laughs> I mean, it also turns out that query letters aren't hard. Yeah. You just have to know what you just have to like be aware of what you're trying to do, you know. But anyway, that's a whole anyway, separate thing. But. Anyway, um, so we've got a big topic today. Yes. And it's a topic that I spent a very long time yesterday. Yes. Uh, parsing. Yes. Um, so Eric, just get prepared for me to like talk at you. For no, a little I, bit. I can't wait. So I'm gonna I'm gonna tee you up for it. Yeah. Here because I want to, you know. You know, turn you loose like a junkyard dog, you know, <laughs> sort of thing. Um, we're told basically, and I'm coming to this topic slightly newer than you. Um, Barnes and Noble is making a fundamental change to, the, or has been, Im, you know, go, implementing a fundamental change to which books they're displaying, how they're displaying them, what they're buying, all sorts of things like that. And it has, I think, over the last week, and certainly over the last couple of days, more and more, I'm seeing a lot of. And it even came up last night in, during office hours. Someone asked a question about it. Like, this is something that is now becoming a concern for book people, for writers. Um, basically, Laura, my question to you to get us started is, what the hell is happening at Barnes & Noble? Oh, boy. Okay, so I would first like to start by saying that these changes to merchandising have been something that I've been seeing for the past few months on a case-by-case basis, particularly with middle grade and YA hardcovers. That's okay. kind of like what specifically That's we're going to be talking about, today, but yeah. we'll be we'll be spiraling out a little bit as we go, as as we always do, well, emotionally, and, spiritually. And real quick, what do we know about any basically any topic in publishing, which is that everything starts in these categories and moves outward, right? Yeah. Like I feel like YA and these are there. It's often the petri dish for whatever is going to happen everywhere else. You know? Oh yeah, because Kidlet, like yeah. just like yeah. as a quick aside, um, Kidlet particularly middle grade YA, these are areas that have read over or reader turnover mm-hmm. and they're very nicely split between like libraries and trade and uh, yeah. schools. Yeah. So you just get like a lot of information from these books uh, that happens much more slowly when it comes to adult and other like genre work. So anyway, this is what <laughs> this is where we're starting, right? We have a sort of unofficial official policy that's been building over the last several months but now seems to be hitting really hard which is that Barnes & Noble will no longer be stocking middle grade hardcovers and to some extent YA hardcovers at their locations unless you are like the top one to two titles from your imprint or publisher. Mm -hmm. So that sucks for a lot of readers and a lot of writers because um, currently in the United States, YA and middle grade are sort of primarily published at the very beginning of a book's life in hardcover. And Uh as we know, if those hardcovers don't sell super well, there's a really good chance that this book is not going to get a paperback. Right. We also know that Barnes & Noble is (coughs) the largest book chain in the country. Mm Um, And it's not hard to see and look at this and go, oh, so this is going to really, really hurt debuts. 
This is going to um, disproportionately affect writers of color. This is kind of just like real shitty for a lot of writers. So let's let's. I want to go slow here. I want to yes. unpack that because you you basically you gave us the situation, mm-hmm. which is that Barnes Noble is scaling back how many hardcovers that they are planning to um, stock stock yeah. to you know and put on their shelves. Rather than making that like leap. That one that I think is correct. That um, you know this policy Barnes and Noble has of doing you know purchasing and you know stocking less hardcovers from you know fewer types of you know writers and houses and things like that. Obviously, you know I think intuitively we can tell like this will be bad for marginalized creators. This will be bad for debuts, but. It, I feel like language like that flies around so much, mm-hmm. you know, whenever anything happens in the industry. Usually it's correct, but, like, why – so this is my question for you that I think I would like to hear broken down. Why is Barnes & Noble's decision to stock less hardcovers in this way bad for debuts and marginalized writers? So in the immediate, we have um, – we just have the fact that a lot of publishers – particularly in Kidlet, but also all over the place, um, they're doing slightly better with publishing books by marginalized creators, Mm -hmm. but they're still not equally and very well represented in the breakout book category. So if, if, you know, in, if little Brown children's gets one book, Mm -hmm. what do you want to bet that it's going to be, an author that has not been published before, what do you want to bet that it's going to be a black author or an Asian author? Um, The chances are much lower and that's For a variety of reasons, right? One, it's probably, that's, you know, the the odds are against what you're describing because probably most of the authors who would even be options on their list are not, you know, black. You know, that's probably, we know who these places are publishing. Mm -hmm. You know, so like, our pool of possible options is skewed a certain way. But then even beyond that, there's a certain amount of quote-unquote risk assessment that mm-hmm. happens, right? Like when you have one slot that's going to Barnes & Noble instead of, I don't know, pick a number. Say, say four. Or, or, yeah, I was going <laughs> to say four. But no, the actual answer is like 15 because you, you, you used to be able to sell all your stuff in. You know, yep. like um, you're going to pick the book. That you're most confident would do well at Barnes and Noble. Yep. And the book that these places across all Barnes and Nobles, to be specific. Yeah. And so, like, the book that publishers who we know are famously risk averse and are also famously attached to precedent, right? Like, this is why we have comps. This is why we have all of these other things. This is why we have P and Ls. <laughs> Don't get me started again. Um, like, they're gonna go to what they know. And what they know is the specific sort of white author in a track and a milieu that they know they can sell, that they've sold before, all these sorts of things. And, like, it's it's one more thing in publishing that discourages, like, diversity and I'm going to say risk in the sense that – not that it's, like, risky to publish. Like, that's not what I mean. It's but very what, demonstratively not. Exactly. But. but what I mean is, like, from a publisher's point of view – like doing a bunch of different things, especially things I haven't done as much of, like 
they often see that as, you know, something that they are less willing to throw immediate resources yeah. behind. Than, and that's and, so that's in the short term. What we're going to see yeah. probably in the long term is that if this strategy continues at Barnes and Noble, what we'll be seeing also is an increasing um, lack of investment in midlist titles from publishers, which is also is going already to, a trend. We is, already know this. It's yeah. already happening, and we know that there is a like a very strong double standard when it comes to authors of color mm-hmm. in particular, mm-hmm. where they're expected to do far better, but given fewer resources. And because because the publishers are just like dipping their toes. They're like, maybe even though we have years of data that books with black characters sell, like maybe this one won't. So maybe we won't do it. Maybe we'll just invest in one every few years. Well, it's what I I, I call that uh, a show me deal. Yeah. And you see this in sports a lot, too. I always whenever we deal with like money and contracts, that's like the other place I always go. But like the idea is like, oh, we want to do it. Like we want you to publish the book. We want you to, quote unquote, be on the team. But. Show us the results first before we give you the big check, you know, yep. before, as opposed to what happens in so many other situations where you get the money up front, you get the advance, you get the, the put the publisher puts you in position to succeed in the first place by investing the resources behind you, you know, and it's these deals feel and all of this just strikes me as so self-fulfilling, right? It's like, oh, when, when a book doesn't let's just say like a book doesn't get into Barnes and Noble, probably that means it's going to sell fewer copies, right? Like that's not a logical leap that if a book is not in the biggest retail chain in America, that less people will buy it. Yep. And then once less people buy it, what's a publisher going to do? They're going to look at these numbers and say, "Mm, this sort of book isn't quite working for us. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And then it just, it just circles and circles and circles. And I just, and I, I do wonder, like I'm trying to think, why how about this question why would barnes and noble do this we know why it's bad we know that they are doing it we know that um it's it's particularly bad for writers right now yeah. because publishers have not had the time to adjust to this policy like in yeah. a year and a half from now books coming out might be put out in trade paperback first but at this point, the books that they're already printing in China in hardcovers that suddenly what they were expecting to get stocked in Barnes and Noble, they're not getting stocked. We're looking at one to two years yeah. of like authors that are going to be put at a disadvantage, mostly because of this policy and publishing being unable to adjust to it. So we should we should break down just extremely briefly like why there is that level of lead time and why it's hard to adjust. And it's because that... It takes a really long time to make a book. Well, (laughs) That's the first very basic one. But the second one is that the decision to get in, like when you're talking to Barnes & Noble, like, please take our book, right? Like you have someone on your staff whose job it is to talk to someone at Barnes & Noble and basically say, we think you should stock this book, right? That conversation happens, it happens early, you know what I mean? And it happens as, you know, pursuant of other internal conversations like launch like you know all of these little bits of machinery happen well in advance you know like you Mm -hmm. as an editor you pitch your books and including the format of your books which is what's relevant here like 
you pitch that almost a year in advance. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like launch meetings, you know, they're for many seasons ahead of time. And so that the sellers, you know, in your place, like a bookseller, you know, in-house is someone who goes to stores and, you know, Amazon and all these places and says, we think you should stock this many copies because it'll sell, you know. And this is our lead title. Exactly. Yeah. And that's, that actually right there is the key part, is the, the designation of this is the one we think you should. This is the one we think is going to make you the most money. That's what lead title means. And that designation, that's what's narrowing here. And I think that's really crucial. Like, basically, Barnes & Noble is saying your lead, like, whatever whatever little subset of lead titles you thought you had, actually that number is much smaller now. Mm-hmm. And in the publishing atmosphere with haves and have-nots in terms of, like, budgets and things like that, like, that's going to have an effect. And I I just keep coming back to the question, like, why would Barnes & Noble do this? Like, what... Like, what is it on their end? What are they seeing? Like, what's the logic behind a move yeah. like this on their end, you know? Well, Eric, I'm so glad you asked. Yeah. Um, okay, so everybody in publishing, writers, editors, agents, we're all kind of horrified by this decision, right? Yeah. Because it's immediately going to do bad things to their lists. Uh-huh. Um, but we have to remember that Barnes & Noble is very much operating under a making money by appealing to consumers model. At this point, they don't care and in fact have greatly divested themselves from really like intimate relationships with publishers in a way that they had years before. So before, the lead buyer nationwide at Barnes & Noble could say, "Ah, this year lead title Penguin, I don't like this cover." And then Penguin would redo the cover. They would. Um, Publishers used to have. Yeah. Also, a huge bulk of the store displays used to be pay to play. So publishers would pay to have a certain title presented. Um, Right before the pandemic, BN uh, was sold and James Daunt, who can we talk for a second? So the new CEO of Barnes & Noble was, mm. is considered, he's British, he's considered the man who saved Waterstones, yeah. which is the Barnes & Noble sort of equivalent in yeah. the UK. He's yeah. also founded his own indie bookstores. His first name is Achilles, and he goes by James. We're making Achilles these days? <laughs> that That's something that's, I, 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 I mean, didn't know. I mean, he's like 57, I think, but like, come on, man. I shouldn't name my kid Achilles. Well, you've, you've got another chance. You're but right. like... You know, it's like he's go. He goes. His name is James Daunt, and his first name is actually Achilles. Already suspect. I was gonna say it's badass. I mean, but he doesn't go by it. That's the problem. That is the problem. Don't hide Achilles. Yeah, don't Does hide he, it. Well, I guess if you have an Achilles, the whole point of Achilles is he hides his Achilles, right? Because like, <laughs> anyway. Uh, <laughs> anyway, okay. So Jesus Christ, <laughs> James Daunt. Okay, it's it's important to look when you're going. How in the world? Does Barnes and Noble think that this is a good yeah, idea? Yeah, it's important to look back on what James Daunt did with Waterstones, right? So basically, he took this chain that was failing, very, very obviously failing, was put in charge of it, and his big solution was to allow more freedom and the at the individual store level, so that booksellers could adjust their stock and attract the people in their communities, right? It worked. Mm. It worked. And so one of the things that happened when he took over Barnes & Noble, a few things happened. Um, So 
one of the things is his one of his main goals for operating costs to get them down is or previously Barnes and Noble had a return rate of about 25%. And when I'm not talking about customers returning books, I'm talking books from publishers that a, that a bookstore buys are returnable. So if they're on the shelf for a certain amount of time, nobody's moving them. They have too many copies. They can send them back. So crazy. I First know. of all, like the, I just, every single time something like that comes up, I just look at it yeah. and think, this is the stupidest industry in the entire world that we let that happen. Yeah. But and anyway. that is like historically related to favorable terms for publishers yeah. and booksellers yeah. Yeah, yeah. from World War II, etc. Sure. But point is, they're returnable. And his thing is, we're at 25%. We want to get to 10%. Something also that is quite often very true of indie bookstores is um, that they continuously move backlists. Like, they're not quite as dependent on frontlist titles and sales on that. So that's been a focus that he's been pushing towards. Um, there's a very – we talked about how the pay-to-play has gone away. That's a James Daunt thing. Um, as what, in, as in can, yeah. publishers cannot pay to get books stocked at Barnes and Noble anymore. Right. But what happens is he's also give he's also given the individual stores more freedom by there are only nine mandated uh, displays in the entire store. The rest of it is up to the individual sellers. Um, even some things about like which hardcovers are on the 30% off hardcover sale, that varies store by store because they make the decisions based on their stock. Mm -hmm. Where it gets really shitty uh, <laughs> is that um, James Dot has, in divesting the whole like every bookstore gets the same books sort of thing, um, he's also gotten rid of a lot of his ordering staff. Like before, three to four years ago, there was one person like in the store who would mm -hmm. handle orders yep. every day and they had a little they had they did have like more control of their stock. Now the booksellers have control over their displays, mm -hmm. but there is one person supervising doing orders multiple stores. doing multiple stores. Mm -hmm. So they're less reactive in that way, yeah. which is becoming really, really visible given like supply chain issues that are happening right yeah. now. Um and so basically, we're kind of seeing this, like, you can sort of halfway have control, but you can't really have your stock. And that's reflected in not wanting to stock hardcovers. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it's also at this point worth mentioning that it's very standard in the UK in children's publishing, particularly in middle grade, to simultaneously publish hardcover and trade paperback at the same time. Mm -hmm. um, so, like... Maybe that's a thing that would work really well for the North American audiences. Well, so well, we don't have the time for that. <laughs> I want to I want to pause there for a second because it's interesting, and this was actually something that came up yesterday during office hours. Uh, we kind of got we were talking about this and like we should spend a second on like consumer habit yeah. and like how people actually shop for books. Mm -hmm. Like it's usually like these format differences; they matter quite a bit to yeah. people in the store and to people like like the way you know we're very we're much I maybe this is what I'm trying to say we, readers on our end and people who buy books we're much more format conscious than 
publishers are when they're making these decisions. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. you go in, you just you told me before we got on the air, like, you go in to a bookstore, you're like, I want a, I want a paperback. Yeah. You know what I mean? I like, and, I like holding them better. And I do the same thing. Like, but when you, I you go do in, hardcovers. Yeah, when I go in, I sometimes, I like to, I really enjoy the, you know, new adult fiction section. I, one, because I just like seeing what's out there, but like, that's the table I feel like I am critically engaging with both for my job and for my own reading habits, right? And yeah. Like, for it's, clarification, it's the new display of adult titles, not the new adult yes, section. Yes, <laughs> yes, Which isn't a thing. It's still not a thing. Um, yes. Yeah, and, you know, but, like, at the same time, if I want a book, I'm, I'm just going to buy the book. Mm-hmm. So going back again to why in the hell is not stocking these hardcover makes sense. Mm-hmm. It makes sense because the fewer books, the fewer titles you stock, the fewer returns you need to do. And also the fewer titles you need to return in general, which does cut down on labor. Yep. Um, we also have, again, taking the control of the specific stock away out of the hands of the stores a little bit more, even though they have more control over the displays and the hand selling. But I spoke to a children's bookseller at a Barnes & Noble um, anonymously, but on the record yesterday. And I was made aware of some forthcoming changes this fall and winter sure. that also maybe <coughs> give some give some insight here. So what's happening is, uh, and this is across kind of all fiction, but they're going to be pulling out all of the hardcovers and shelving them together in each genre so there's going to be basically two alphabets so you're at the very beginning of the section of the fiction section of the romance section of the whatever section there's going to be a to z in hardcover and then there's going to be a to z in paperback okay so seems nice if you're going to be a person who is browsing for if you're a person browsing for format but in this particular bookseller's experience, people are l- a little less, people who don't like work in books, uh, perhaps care a little bit less about format and more about price, which are related, but they're not the same thing. Right. Um, what's also going to be happening, which is going to be probably a little bit more concerning for the science fiction and fantasy and romance uh, sections is that all of the mass market paperbacks, which are the um, lower price, price point, smaller paperbacks, mm. are going to be pulled out and there is going to be a mixed genre mass market store inside of Barnes & Noble. Mm-hmm. So if you go and you're like, I have 30 bucks and I want to buy like <laughs> yeah. five books, yeah. you can just go over to the mass market section, which again seems like nice to move volume. But also kind of hell if a books if a if a if an like customer comes up and they're like, I want this new book from the writer who did this. Yeah. And it's going to be so much harder because there's going to be like four alphabets. Right. Technically, there will be three alphabets to find things and it's all by format. And so the complications there are, you know, like what happens if publishers, because of this change, are threatened to like are, are forced to do multiple formats mm-hmm. and might just go, oh, well, it'd be too hard for our customers to find. We're only going to take one of them. Um, there, you know, I there's, mean, a li- <laughs> there's a lot and it's 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 a squeeze and it's it's going to be tough. And I, I think there's like one counterpoint here, though, that 
I do find somewhat interesting, and that's like, um, well, I guess I guess I don't know. I mean, I definitely find it interesting. I don't know what I think about it, but from I keep coming back to Barnes and Noble's perspective mm-hmm. on this stuff, and right, like we know, that, like this is bad for specifically debuts, right? Because it might mean that less debuts show up because debuts are quote unquote unproven. Yep, they're untested, and therefore publishers are going to be less prone to pushing them hard and uh, booksellers are going to be less prone to stocking them. But Mm -hmm. there's also, you know, you and I talk so much about how bad we think it is that books have such a short, like, awareness, like, shelf life. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like, a book can feel like it comes and goes in a matter of months and then suddenly no one ever talks about it ever again. And, like, one thing Barnes & Noble is sort of announcing here, I think, is that you know, they are interested in pushing backlist. Right. You know what I mean? Which on its face is not something I, I can't tell you that I dislike that. I mean, I think that I, w- I want there to be ways to support debut authors. But like the idea that a bookstore would say, hey, this debut book of ours or this debut book that we're stocking, it's doing well. We're going to keep stocking it. Or this other book we know sells, we're going mm-hmm. to keep stocking it like it's hard to fault them for that sort of logic, right? You know what I mean? And and I also know, like, internally, like, in in terms of how publishers see things, like, the thing that keeps a publisher's lights on, especially in, especially in Indie House, as opposed to, like, these places that are doing these giant boomer bust deals up top, but, like, it's backlist. It's the stuff you don't have to work on that much anymore that just keeps selling, and it keeps selling, and it keeps selling steady. And... This feels like a move that is going to at least be good for that model. Yeah. You know, now that's still tricky because does it deprioritize new writers? Does it deprioritize, you know, writers who haven't had, you know, as good of a shot at things yet? Like, yeah, it does. And that sucks. Well, I'm a little bit worried, though, because notably it's backlist, not like back midlist because yeah. those big hits, yeah. those big hits that they're choosing now will be the books, the backlist, that pr- that the they backlist yeah. in two years. So it, and it's they're almost prioritizing. like, yeah. And it's hard to say that they can like, I don't have any like, back- trust at this point that they will stock a title because it's backlist when they refuse to stock it when it's a debut. Yeah, no, I, I, th- I agree with that. And I think that it's. Like, probably the net overall effect here is a little bit bleak, right? Like, we're going to end up in a place where it's, like, if bookstores just, you know, I think about it, it's almost like everywhere it's becoming the airport. You know what I mean? Oh, sure. You know what I'm saying? Because, like, an airport bookstore, like, what do they sell? It's not an, it's not usually. They all have the same books. They all have the same books, and they all have the biggest books, right? Like, an airport bookstore is not trying to give you indie, interesting picks, it's Except trying... for ours, which is run by Open Book, so good job, you guys. <laughs> okay, that one specific situation, you know. Um, thank you, Milkweed. But like, um, you know, like an, like a Hudson or like a whatever. Yeah. You know, these stores, they're selling you the biggest ones. You know, they're selling you the ones that you go into an, an airport bookstore and you know every you have seen before. Every single book on yep. the show. You know what I mean? Like, you know these books. You're not going to an airport bookstore to, like, discover no. a title. No, you're not. And you're going, so, oh, yeah, I've seen that on TikTok. I'll buy it. Yes. And so I wonder, like, it just feels like everywhere is becoming the airport, you know? Yeah. And that I find frustrating, you know? I well, don't know. It's, well, what's, 
the the thing to pay attention to here is that so often we talk about booksellers, like the individuals um, being very much like a, a partner of of a writer, right? Like when the book mm-hmm. comes out, one good bookseller can do more Absolutely. than like maybe sometimes an entire like marketing team yeah. for a publisher. Yeah. yeah. What's so interesting here is just this strategy is sort of obliquely telling us that in order for this big box bookstore to stay alive and to continue to compete with Amazon and to to like provide books in communities that otherwise would not have a bookstore, which is objectively good, right? That they have to like go against a lot of publishers and therefore the writers. Mm-hmm. Like there's like previously the one thing that traditional publishing and their like had that Amazon like wasn't quite having was the curation and in, in when it comes yeah. to distribution. Right. Yeah. And like, you know, Barnes and Noble is doing lots of like online sales, but man, it's still like BN.com is garbage to browse on. Um, and it I think really that is. that's going to be something that they work on. But in terms of like, it's just, it's very strange to me that the idea of we're like BN is competing with Amazon. And to do that, we need to be more like the indies, but we're going to be less supportive of writers than indies are. And I think a lot of that comes down. It's incoherent. A lot of it comes down to labor, frankly. Yeah, like just it does. the fact that they have fewer booksellers and they're trying to. That's what they mean by indie. Yeah. We want an indie sized stat. We're going to just <laughs> lay people off till we have the same. Like it's yeah. just so stupid. They're doing, it, you know, they have fewer booksellers. They have fewer people doing the buying. Yeah. Um, they're, they're trying to steam, streamline operations, give you the feel of a curated indie bookstore. We want to be like but an not, indie store because we don't want an HR department. Basically. But, um, but not all of it. And it's just like, yeah. it's going to be. Like, on one hand, I'm very hopeful that they're still going to keep, like, sticking it to Amazon. But on the other hand, there is no way to look at this and go, well, that's going to be great for writers. Like, this is going to, like, maybe it's going to be good for readers insofar as readers will be able to buy more, more easier in places where otherwise they wouldn't be able to buy anything at all. See, this is what, this is, this is what I was trying to, that's a much better way of putting what I was trying to get out a minute ago, which is like, the logic here from Barnes & Noble does make sense in a consumer-focused sort of way. Right. It does not make any sense in the, how do we support, you know, writers and trying to change the scene. I'm like, that's... Maybe it's too much to ask to, like, expect this big book-selling corporation to, like, actually invest in and value the people making the products that they're selling. So here's (laughs) here's the question, then. Who do we get to ask that of? You know what I mean? Because at some point, somebody in this equation, and it's been, you know, I mean, sometimes it's agents, sometimes it's, but like, who is really doing the, I'm going to do the thing that's good for writers, not good for our overall bottom line, I you mean, know, on the other end. Like, I think who's the doing answer that? is like, like indie booksellers? Yeah, it's just like, it's so hard, yeah. like, to. I think BN right now is trying to be. Like trying to give consumers what indie bookstores do, but not wanting to invest in labor or product. Yeah. And 
the thing is, is you either can invest and get the trust of your readers that way by curation, or you can be a big box store that, you know, where the labor is like replaceable. You don't get to do both. And right now, these policies are showing me that they're trying to do both. Well, here's and something's going to have to give. Here's a really comforting quote uh, from the trial just now. And um, this is also from Alex Shepard. Um, the defense is now making the case, so the defense, remember, is Penguin Random House, uh, that there really isn't a huge difference between a blockbuster and a debut novel. We see the same bargaining processes, the same editorial processes, same editors, same printing, same distribution, same retailers. Well, that's not true. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. So, okay. For the purposes of this conversation, let's focus on the, like, printing, distribution, There's no difference. We're being shown right now that there is a difference. That there is a difference. Also, like, the idea that, oh, this one book is is being printed by the same printer as this other book. Okay. Can I just ask one follow-up question? It's, how much of each... And when you do, when you're distributing, how much of each? And when you get it into retailers, how much of each? Like, there's just no quantities here. This is the thing that's driving me nuts about this trial, and as it specifically relates to what we're talking about right now, right. which is like they're trying to elide the difference between books that they have invested, in many cases, millions of dollars in, versus the ones that we are now we've now just spent an hour saying are going to get even less of a shot. You know, and. Yeah. It's just crazy. It's insanity inducing. It's and I just wish that they would engage with it on the level of what's actually happening. I understand that they can't do that because they're in court trying to justify the stupid thing they want to do. But like when this is done and they get their asses handed to them, any you know, with any luck, like how about we have a real conversation, you know? It's and, incredibly funny to me that literally as this news and this reality of BN stocking behavior is happening and like the curtains being pulled up. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are like publishers are arguing the exact opposite thing. It's like the partners that we have here are not the same. And so I guess like, unfortunately there's not, there's not really like anything. The writers who are, you know, two weeks away from debuting and are finding out that their books aren't going to be available in any Barnes and Noble. Like there's, there's nothing we can tell you to do for that other than, like, make sure that when it comes to selling your next book, your agents argue the shit out of why your numbers might not be where they are for print. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like, that's something where you can you can have an agent push back on. Um, you know, make sure that if, like, that you're supporting every indie that you can and if you want to... Show Barnes and Noble that they're making stupid choices. Um, you can still go in and order specific copies of books for you. Yeah. And the more you do that, the more ammunition you give booksellers who, to be clear, are trying to get more books in. Yeah. They are being told yeah. no. Right. Like by corporate. The ones that actually know what you want to read, they know that these books are important. Um and they know that their audience wants them. Like if you we like hopefully, you know, this will either be a short transitional kind of policy. Um, but if it's not, you know, as consumers, we can very hopefully show 
BN that this policy is not actually the best for the bottom line, even though it might get their returns down to 10%, which feels less important yeah. than actually like being a place where people go to buy books instead of just going, well, it's not available at Barnes & Noble. Pretty important. Uh, like I'll gonna, go to, I'll order it on Amazon. It's never going to work. It's Guys, gonna work. it's never going to work. You're doing all these things that you think are going to work, and it's just going to put you further in the same hole. I just... Anyway. I don't know. There's... <sighs> I don't know. There's things there's things here where like maybe running big box bookstores in America runs a little bit differently than running them in the UK, which is a much smaller market, much smaller country, yeah. uh, different demographics, etc. Yeah. But essentially, like we don't have information for how this is shaping up. You know, the new merchandising reorganization plans for Barnes and Nobles are supposed to be happening by Christmas. So maybe by the time the holiday season happens, maybe by the time um, spring debuts come along, there will be a change to this. Maybe we'll have more information. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the end of the day, like, I guess, we, you know, keep supporting authors of color. Keep like if you like the sound of a debut book. Pre-order it and We're going to have it. to, I mean, it's just the same thing as ever. We're going to have to make the scene ourselves. You yeah. know what I mean? Like, these places are not going to help us do it. So. We just got to do the thing and yep. show them that what they think consumers want yeah. is not actually exactly what they're giving us. And yep. their booksellers are great and they should listen to them more. Yep. I feel like I should have that. We should have that on a t-shirt. Um, like, booksellers are great. Listen to them. Yeah. I they're mean, the smart ones. They same are with the librarians. Smart ones. <laughs> I mean, they are, like... I mean, that's a whole other thing. We should get, like, a bookseller on this show to tell us how smart they are. Um, yeah. So, anyway. Yeah. Anyway, thank you all so much for joining us. I hope um, this particular episode shed a little bit more light on why this is happening, how this is happening, um, even if perhaps it didn't make you feel any better. Uh, remember, <laughs> we're over on Patreon doing office hours, first pages, query shows, etc. And we'll see you for another episode the next time we get really mad about some big. That'll be soon. Don't worry about that. Very, very soon. (laughs) Yeah. Bye.